Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There are a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on the forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster this very exciting Monday, your daily guide to British politics as ever. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepke. So, Seb, is it going to be breakthrough or breakdown? No sooner had the EU's chief negotiator, Michel Barnier, told envoys uh, from the 27 member states that the ball is in Boris Johnson's court than ping. A British official says that Brexit trade talks could collapse within hours if negotiators don't make progress. This is really getting down to a matter of hours. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those stories at this point where you cannot take your eye off the ball. There are news lines flying all over the place. You really have to cut through a lot of the noise to make sense of what's going on behind those closed doors. Uh, The EU and UK sources playing down suggestions that there's been significant progress on fishing. We all thought that that was solved at one point. An EU diplomat telling Bloomberg that significant differences in general haven't been bridged. So with that in mind, here is the Foreign Office Minister James Cleverley, who says talks are ongoing. We will keep negotiating until the point where there can be no further negotiating or until a deal is done. So exactly, exactly when that is, I don't know. But we're, we're working to get a deal. There is still the opportunity, still a possibility of getting a deal. So, Seb, in terms of what comes next, Cabinet Minister Michael Gove is expected to meet European Commission Vice President Maros Sefcovic in Brussels today. And that ahead of this make or break potentially phone call between the Prime Minister and the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen this evening. But then actually it's Thursday uh, that is said to be the new deadline for getting a deal finalised. Yeah, and then this all, Caroline, runs in parallel with what is going on in Westminster. You have to look at these two things together. The internal market bill, uh, which has been condemned by critics, including five former British prime ministers, back in the House of Commons today. Remember, the House of Lords took out those law-breaking amendments. The Commons expected to put them back in again today. So you've got ping-pong ongoing there. The Telegraph saying that Boris Johnson's going to press ahead with that legislation, but make clear that the safety nets can be removed if they are no longer needed. Remember, this is very much a negotiating tool on the UK's part, and that is something that they are digging in on as these talks head towards some sort of conclusion. Yeah, let's bring in our guests for the programme this morning. Uh, Wes Streeting, Labour MP for Ilford North and Shadow Schools Minister. Good morning, Wes. You join us on really a packed Monday where an historic decision may or may not be made. Is it worth, in your view, pulling out when it comes to the Brexit trade discussions? No, and look, the government can't keep on popping up to say how great it is that we've struck a trade deal with Japan and how well other trade negotiations are going. 
whilst at the same time not apparently taking as seriously striking a trade deal with our nearest and biggest trading partner, the European Union. And let's remember, we're not starting from scratch here. As a result of our historic membership of the European Union and the fact we've been in the transition period, we already have a number of of intricate and complex agreements in place covering a wide range of issues from trade to security. And so if we fail to strike a deal, that will be an absolute disaster for the British economy, for jobs, uh, for security cooperation. And that's why getting a deal is so important and why, you know, as we are staring into the barrel of no deal, we want the government and the European Union to strain every sinew to come back with a deal that protects jobs, keeps our country safe, and also, bluntly, recognises that with everything else that's going on with coronavirus, the last thing we need are problems of our own making. So, you know, Boris Johnson promised an oven-ready deal. He's made all sorts of big, bold promises. Yeah. He's got a majority in Parliament to deliver it. Where's the deal? That's the question we're all asking. What does that look like, Wes, though, in practice from the UK side? If you were in that room now, are you looking at giving ground on something like fish, which would, after all, get us closer to a deal that you say is so critical? Well, clearly there's got to be some compromise and there's got to be give and take. The European Union has to respect and recognise that in voting to leave the European Union and giving the government the mandate that they have, uh, that people do want control over our sort of money, laws, borders, you know, all the stuff we've been hearing for, for the last few years. And on the UK government side, of course, it, you know, if that's the position the UK's set out, um, that doesn't, you know, by definition mean that we were able to access the single market and, and, and the customs union in the same way that we have before. What I would point mm-hmm. out is that, you know, the reason why give and take is so important is because not only would no deal be really bad for the UK, it would also be really bad for the European Union as well. And, you know, whether we're talking about the UK or France or Germany or other EU member states, we all have enough to contend with at the moment with the coronavirus pandemic, and not just on the public health side, the economic side as well. So it is in Mm. both parties' interest to secure a deal. If we do get a deal, though, um, you know, whatever it contains, there will be years. I mean, one expert I was speaking to this morning said 15 years of further negotiations, if not endless, never-ending negotiations, really, about the UK's relationship with the EU when it comes to rules and standards and so on, once we're actually out of the system. The negotiations are never going to stop. Well, as with any sort of partnership, and that, I think this is true of other trade uh, agreements as well, there will always be a need to revisit issues, to look at areas of common interests and common cause, to see whether trade agreements can be strengthened and cooperation strengthened, both on existing issues, but also you know emerging challenges um, as they crop up over the years. Uh, the important thing, I think, you know, and, and speaking as someone who campaigned and passionately believed in remaining in the European Union, I think most people in this country, however they voted, just want to move on now and are, I think, kind of scratching their heads, wondering how it is that we are here in early December 2020 without a deal already having been negotiated and agreed. The referendum took place three We've had two general elections since then and a government that boasted of both having an oven-ready deal and having a majority in order to deliver it. So the only question we're asking in Parliament today is, where is the deal?
get on with it. We need to agree the deal and move on. Uh, and, and when that deal does come about, do you think that Labour should back it? It very much depends on what the deal says, bluntly. I mean, we haven't seen it. And one of the challenges we have as an opposition trying to scrutinise what the government's doing is that um, so much of the negotiations are shrouded in secrecy and we rely on briefing and counter-briefing. And, and you know, let's, let's be clear about this. A lot of what we'd be reading, both in the British press and in the continental press, um, will be people... And, and both sides of the negotiating team playing to their own domestic audiences. So, um, you know, I think we've got to try and cut through all of that noise and just get to the substantial issues uh, and negotiate a deal. My fear is that we will end up with something that falls far short of what Boris Johnson promised at last yeah. year's general election and the Leave campaign he promised uh, and he led promised at the referendum. The challenge is, of course, this is water under a bridge now. I mean, we aren't, you know, we are, we've fought a referendum and we lost. There have been two general elections since. So, so, so Wes, you say you would, in theory, so you say you would, in theory, vote for a deal. This is a big matter of debate within the Labour Party. How do you avoid Labour coming in for blame later down the line if things don't pan out as hoped? Well, as I say, we, we don't know what's going to be in a deal, um, but what we do know is that the big choice facing the country right at this moment is between leaving the European Union with a deal or leaving the European Union with no deal. And what we have argued consistently um, you know, during the referendum and since is that the worst possible outcome for our country would be leaving the European Union with no deal. The challenges that would present British businesses, the threat that would pose to British jobs, uh, the threat it would pose to our own national security in terms of cooperation with other European countries. It, it, it is too miserable and challenging to contemplate, mm. frankly, and that's why the government has to pull their finger out and get deal agreed. And we hope the EU will also play their role in this. This has got to be a case of compromise and give and take on both sides. Yes, although that's not seemed to be possible so far. And on the British side, officials, one official saying, you know, that the, the next few hours will be critical. I mean, if there isn't a deal in sight, isn't it better just to cut one's losses and to try to salvage some time to prepare for a no deal for those businesses you've talked about? Well, well the time is, time is over. I mean, we're leave, we are leaving the Europe. As, as the current status quo is, if nothing changes, if there's no deal agreed, we are leaving the European Union without a deal at the end of this month. And we will start the new year in a very, very hideous position in terms of, particularly in terms of jobs um, and the economy. Um, and, and, and what I find pretty galling, actually, is that there is a massive government advertising campaign at the moment, lecturing business on getting ready for Brexit. It seems to me that the government isn't ready for Brexit. Boris Johnson, by the way, has been clear on this, and as have you know, some of the no-deal fanatics in his own party. They, they are prepared to contemplate no-deal, um, which I think is an absurd position, but that is mm. nonetheless their position. What I find so, inex even more inexplicable and outrageous is the government don't seem to have done serious planning for no-deal. We I mean, just take ports as an example. The French have got their ducks in a row on their side of the channel. We're the ones that have instigated this. We're the ones that are threatening no-deal, and we are nowhere near as prepared as the French. And I think ultimately that will be a failure of government and... Boris Johnson's failure, whether it's a deal or no deal, um, the responsibility for all of this lies at Boris Johnson's door. He's got no excuses, no hiding places. He's got the majority he wants. He's, he's governing the country. The only question is whether he's going to govern the country in the interest of all of its people. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? 
With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. We start with the virus. The first doses of that Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine are now in UK hospitals with inoculations set to begin tomorrow. So people aged 80 and over, care home workers and some NHS staff first in line to get the jab. Saffron Cordry from NHS providers is explaining here why it's not being given to everybody working in the health service. Although we've got 800,000 doses coming into the country, because we need a double dose to vaccinate people, that's really only a distribution to 400,000 people. So what was needed was a way of making sure that those who really needed it most would get it. So the government, they're going by its uh, priority system to dish out this vaccine. NHS England Medical Director Professor Stephen Powis warning that it will take many months to vaccinate everybody who needs it. So this is a relatively long term effort. Yes, exactly. You might not have noticed that given the number of people out Christmas shopping in the last uh, few days in many uh, towns across uh, the UK. Um, Speaking of which, not such a good life in the north. The chances of living a good life apparently is fading away for too many people in the north of England, according to a new report from the think tank, uh, the IPPR North. The authors say that the UK entered a global pandemic with deep growing divides between and within regions caused by decades of centralisation and years of austerity and they say that COVID-19 and the pandemic makes the challenge of reducing regional inequalities even greater and more urgent than before. Seb, I think we knew this before but I think um, that use of kind of quite stark language and a kind of in-depth report about it showing just how difficult it is to make ends meet and live a decent life in the north is quite grim. Yeah, and very difficult reading for Boris Johnson, who has made that really central to his his pitch as mm. Prime Minister. It's something we'll certainly touch on with Julian David of Tech, Tech UK in just a minute. I've uh, got to talk to you about Debenhams as well in the UK High Street. There is a glimmer of hope for the chain. The Sunday Times reporting that Mike Ashley's Fraser's Group has revived its interest in taking over Debenhams. This after JD Sports pulled out of acquisition talks last week, put the 242-year-old retailer on the verge of liquidation. Lots of jobs as well set to go, which is not what you want to be hearing at a time like this. So the Fraser's Group Finance Director Chris Wooden saying that rescue talks are on a knife edge but could save up to 12,000 jobs if they are successful. So more talks on a knife edge. You can't get enough of those these days. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Mind you, given how flamboyant Mike Ashley is, uh, one has to see how that story uh, really develops. And then just lastly, Labour is urging the government to ensure no one spends winter sleeping on the streets. Its research has found that uh, the usual homeless services uh, were operating at lower capacity because of coronavirus restrictions, with one provider warning that thousands of rough sleepers could be turned away. The Shadow Housing Secretary says that this winter, without the last resort of night shelters, rough sleeping is more desperate than ever. It's really going to be very bleak winter, isn't it, for many, Seb? Yeah, already pretty chilly. You don't want to be out there uh, pretty pretty rough. Uh, now, let's bring it back to Brexit. Sterling slipping suggestions that trade talks could collapse within hours if negotiators don't make progress. The threat of a no-deal Brexit is significant for business, of course. It'd be detrimental to an economy that's already struggling as a result of the virus impact. But if you ask the tech sector, there could be a solution to the economic malaise and the challenges for the government's levelling up agenda. Very key to 
their manifesto this time last year. For more to talk about all of this, let's bring in Julian David. He's the CEO of Tech UK. Julian, good to have you. Uh, Got to start you on Brexit. I mean, we've seen certainly many jobs in the city move from London to other European sites. What about tech? Can the UK still attract key tech talent after Brexit? But if it does it right, it can, Seb. That's, that's the point. And the, the starting point for that, as we've said from Tech UK in, in support of our 850 member companies and 750,000 jobs across the UK, we've been saying we need a deal. And the deal is important, not just for what's in it, but it also sets the scene for other things that follow on. The most important of which is a data adequacy agreement, because the UK is a great service and tech uh, country And we do a huge amount of that with the EU27. And the ability to move data between the EU27 and the UK is absolutely essential for so many industries, not just the the core tech industries that our members represent, but also media companies and fashion companies, e-commerce companies, financial services companies. Everybody needs to be able to move data around. And without that agreement, we won't be able to do that. So data above people then, because freedom of movement for the human beings involved will end no matter what? I would never put data above people, but um, <laughs> so, many, so many of the Caroline's good to remind me of that. So many of the jobs those people do depend on moving data. Yes, mm. we do also want recognition of professional qualifications, the ability for people to move easily uh, in support of customers, in support of other things they need to do between the UK and the EU27. So that also follows on. Uh, but as I say, data, we, we are really good at data in the UK, but so many great industries that we've built around that and the big market of, uh, of 500 million people in the EU27 is, is what we need to keep uh, contact with. Uh, and Julian, you've got a report out where you talk about moving the UK into the digital age. What else are you suggesting to help that happen? So there's a lot of things. And, and by the way, we do enter this point uh, said with, with quite a degree of optimism in our industry, uh, you know, we, we've been growing uh, over recent years, years six times faster than the rest of the UK economy, and we're creating jobs at a pace. In fact, we have a huge shortage of, of people we need in the industry. So there is a, a, you know, a, a, an industry of strength here, and that gives us optimism, something to build on. But we do need to get these things right, and that's why we thought, um, as we entered the digital decade, uh, back in back in January, we thought this was a good time to actually take a look at what tech is doing, the opportunities and the challenges, because, you know, we talk a lot about disruption and change, transformation, and that's okay, you know, if, if, it, if it's going well for you. It's not quite so good if, if you're the person being disrupted, your company's been disrupted. So, so we wanted to understand that, and we were particularly interested following, obviously, the whole levelling up agenda of, you know, we're a, mostly a London-based organisation. A large part of the tech industry, not exclusively, but a large part, has grown up around the southeast: Cambridge, Oxford, London, Bristol, those sort of places. And so we thought, let's let's go and find out what's happening in the other nations of the UK, so Scotland, Northern Ireland, Wales, mm. and let's go and find out what's happening in the Northern and Midlands regions. So we went to the northeast, we went to uh, the northwest, we went to Yorkshire, Humberside, and West Midlands. When I say went to, of course, that was the plan. And then the pandemic hit. So uh, we, we were not able to, to travel around uh, the country. But strangely mm. enough, of course, w- once we uh, dealt with the immediate things that had to be done, 
where a lot of our members are involved in helping the health service. A lot of our members are the suppliers of connectivity and the solutions that people yep. usually have heard of Zoom, you've heard of Teams, etc. So we did it all virtually. Uh, okay. And that's what we've now summarised in this report. Yeah, I want to get to that. You've got all the buzzwords. I know who you're appealing to. Uh, it's, it's a kind of tech promised land um, talking about... Um, that, that there could be 2.7 million new jobs created, that UK and the economic output could be boosted by £145 billion if we get um, the technology agenda right. And that means moving beyond just the kind of basics of faster broadband and increased digital skills. So you've got a whole list of things. But I guess my question is, are they realistic? It is a very long laundry list that you are talking about to try to make this digital decade a reality in Britain. Yeah, it, it is, Caroline, and and you're right to you know to, to question because uh, you know a lot of people have said a lot of things about the opportunity, but I would just come back to the fact that we we have got a good tech and tech based uh, associated industries in the UK, so we know we, we can work. What we were looking at was this levelling up. We were looking at saying, well, supposing we could do the same thing across the whole country and all the nations as is happening in the hotspots. You know, if, 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 uh, if everybody had the same capability, and we've, we've coined a phrase for this, we call it local digital capital, you know. So if we could actually find out what, what everybody's got, and we, we put that under eight categories, and we can actually get everybody to the, the, the best level, then we think we can deliver those kind of numbers. Um, and it, it comes from research that one of our members did, Sage. So you know, there, is a, there is a basis for it. It is, it is something that has to be achieved. And as you say, it's a laundry list. But again, the laundry list, in, in a sense, is not that new. You know, if, if you go down it, more people with digital skills, more SMEs and smaller companies using, using digital tech, better connectivity and, and digital infrastructure, uh, more investment uh, in R&D, opening up data ecosystems and, and supporting companies trading internationally using tech. You know, these, these are things that are on the agenda, have been on the agenda for a while. So in one sense, uh, yeah. this is not something new. It, it's really about putting it all together. And, and that's why we, we, we came up with this idea of what's the local digital capital in each of the regions and nations of, of the UK? And can we get a framework for that? Can we measure it? And then can we do something about it? using the, these, these uh, recommendations that we put out. Well, I mean, a man who was a huge proponent of tech and making the UK a tech superpower and spreading out uh, the, the great riches around the UK was Dominic Cummings. He's now out the door. Is that a loss for you? Is that a loss for the tech industry? Well, I don't think one person uh, is key to this, uh, Seb. I think it's, it, you know, the government has, uh, has said a, a lot of positive things about how it wants to level up and it wants to bring technology and new tech. It's announced a lot of uh, strategies and, and, uh, and things that it's going to go ahead with. It's got some ambitious targets. It's connected that with mm -hmm. some other really ambitious targets around green uh, technology, yeah. clean tech, uh, carbon reduction. These all depend on, on digital technology to, to actually come to fruition. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. 
Our data is made for more. So you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.